church. And I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Luke chapter 16, that's on page 1036. Whenever you uh, invite a friend to church, somebody you've been working on, you're like, come on, you got to come to church. You twist their arm, you nag them, you nag them, and finally one Sunday they come to church. Finally. And inevitably that Sunday the preacher is preaching on one of two topics. <laughs> he's either preaching on money or he's preaching on hell. And you're like, why did I bring my friend this Sunday? And so I know it's a mathematical certainty that there are many visitors here today. Because Luke 16 is about money and hell. So, <laughs> so uh, welcome to South Shore Baptist. We're glad you're here. Let's look at Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 19. This is the parable. Let me read it to you and then we'll jump in. This is a parable Jesus told. Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in the fire, this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Well, this is a really complex parable. I think it's perhaps one of the most complex of Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke. And as I was studying this parable to get ready for this sermon, I was, uh, I was trying to figure out, what am I going to do with it? Is this a sermon about wealth? Is this a sermon about poverty? Is it about the afterlife? Is it about what happens when you die? Is this a sermon about a text about... Uh, Proof, what it takes for people to believe the Gospel. I mean, it's just a lot of moving parts and things you could touch on in this uh, parable that Jesus gives. But I think I found the interpretive key that kind of unlocks this whole thing. Uh, it's sort of an interpretive, uh, like, like a rope that ties the whole thing together and brings the disparate pieces into a unity. 
And the, the interpretive key uh, is, I think, in verse 14. So it says in verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. I think this parable is essentially about, it's a warning against the love of money. This parable is cautioning us against what happens when you love money. And you see, Jesus is, the Pharisees are sneering at Jesus. And so in verse 14, in verse 15, Jesus addresses them. See that? He said to them, and I think that the quotation marks of what he said to them doesn't end until verse 31. Now, chapter 17, verse 1, and we now turn back to the disciples. So, so verses 14 to 31 is all one unit, and therefore it's all directed at the Pharisees and, and their different foibles and problems, and especially their love of money. And so this is a, a whole text. This parable is essentially about the love of money. That's what it's warning us against, the love of money and its consequences, which is something we need to hear on a regular basis. It's something I need to hear because we're so prone to love money. But this is just basic to being a human, a sinful human being. We, we love money. We think about it. We dream, if I just had this or if I had that much more and you know, then I could do X, Y, and Z. We think about what we want to purchase. We look through catalogs and check prices on websites and are always contemplating the next thing that we want to get. And I don't think it's just because we are Americans and live in a consumeristically driven culture. But um, it's part of being a fallen human being, a sinful human being. I, I think money and wealth and prosperity has been a chief deity that human beings have worshipped for as long as there have been sinful human beings. This is something that people look to, is, is money and wealth. Uh, and we ascribe a kind of divine status to it. You know, we think that money can do things for us that God alone can do. That money can change my life, that money can make me happy. Uh, every once in a while, and I don't do very, very often, but every once in a while I catch this, uh, this game show on TV. My wife hates it when I watch the show, but I just, it cracks me up to no end. It's called Deal or No Deal. It's, it's the stupidest show, but it's so funny. Deal or no deal. I love that. I just Every time he says it, it makes me smile. And these people that get on the show, these contestants, I swear they, swip, they must slip them amphetamines before they come on the show. Because the people are just like, wow, and they're, they're crazy. Uh, but, but inevitably, you know, some guy will be at the, the tense moment. He'll have like $120,000 on the line. And, and the question is, do you want to keep that 120000 which is a good thing, or potentially get more money? and go with no deal. And so, you know, the guy's wondering, and the, the host will be like, no, you know, this is a lot of money. A lot of money on the line here. Then he'll, at some point he'll say, you know, this kind of money, money like this, could change your life. I'm like, ah, that's it. Money can change my life. If I just had this amount of money, then my marriage wouldn't have these problems. If I just had this money, then my kids wouldn't have these problems because I could give them what they need and fix them with money. If I just had this money, then I wouldn't be single. If I just had this money, I could be married to someone else. You know, whatever it is. <laughs> if I just had money, uh, I would be happy. I would be content. I would be fulfilled. I wouldn't be this kind of a... Cr the reason I'm so cranky and nasty to everyone is because I don't have enough money. If I just had money, I would be a happy person. I wouldn't be so mean. You know, whatever. It's like money is divine. It can solve all of my problems. So we have this, this kind of belief system. It's the worship of money. We do everything short of making a gilded altar and bowing down to a dollar sign. But it's our God. 
it is our God that we worship and, and people worship and have worshipped for as long as there have been sinful people. And so Jesus knows that. He knows that we are idol worshipers who love money. And so this parable is like a, something to snap us out of that. And you know, the bewitchment of money is so powerful that it takes a really strong smack to kind of get woken out of it. I mean, this parable is a two-by-four. It's like uh, strong medicine. Whack! You know, we have to be smacked out of our uh, money trance and our worship of wealth. And so he tells this really pointed parable. And if I can summarize the point of this parable in one sentence, what is this parable all about? Let me just tell you the gist of the parable in one sentence. All right, here it is. If you love money, you will burn in hell. That's this parable in one sentence. If you love money, you will burn in hell. Aren't you glad you brought your guests today? <laughs> really great day to bring friends. Actually, it is. <laughs> Actually, it is. Maybe this is the most important thing any of us have ever heard. And so let's look at the parable. Verses 20, 19 to 21, we're introduced to the two primary characters, the rich man and Lazarus. There they are. Uh, and we, we're, we see their life here on earth before they die. And I think that taken together, what the, verses 19 to 21 do is they show us what the love of money looks like. How do I know if my heart is prostrating itself before possessions? How do I know if I'm in love with wealth and to what degree? And I think verses 19 to 21 kind of give you a, a diagnostic. They show us what the love of money looks like so that we can look back at our own lives. And each of these two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, in their own way show how the love of money plays itself out in our lives. So let's look at the rich man first. Um, and what he shows us is, is we can look at how we spend our money. Look at how, what you do with your resources. That's an indicator of whether or not you love money. So look at him, verse 19. The, the, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So uh, this guy wears purple and linen, which doesn't mean a whole lot to us necessarily. But remember back then, only the richest of the richest of the richest of the rich could afford purple clothing. Um, back then, the, the way they made purple dye was they had to harvest mollusks from the Mediterranean Ocean. There were about four different mollusks they could harvest. And then they would get them, and there was a little secretion that these mollusks made. So they had to shell them and get this little secretion out and collect it. And um, uh, scholars suggest that it might have been like 8,000 mollusks to gather one gram of purple dye. That's how much you... So this was a long, painstaking process. Archaeologists have found piles and piles of shells on the Mediterranean Ocean, you know, because way back then, this is what they did in Phoenicia and Syria, they would find all these mollusks. And so, you know, 8,000 to get one gram of purple dye. And so you can imagine, purple dye, obviously, is extremely expensive. Uh, the super elitely rich were the only ones who could afford it. It was the color of kings, because only a king could afford that kind of clothing. Um, we also know this guy is super-duper rich, because notice it says he lived in luxury every day. And that phrase lived in Greek is really means to celebrate or to party or to rejoice. So every single day this guy was having a banquet. If you were a very rich person in those times, you might have a fatted calf or two, so on occasion you could have a banquet. This guy was so wealthy, he had a banquet every single day. So, you know, when Jesus describes this person in this one short sentence, he's describing a guy who's at the upper 
0.1% of wealth owners. It's super wealthy that we can't even really fathom, us mere financial mortals, what it must have been to be this guy. He's so insanely uh, blessed with financial resources. <clears throat> but the point is, he spends his wealth on himself. And I think that's the first way that we can know that we have the love of money, is that the love of money uses resources primarily for selfish indulgence, for selfish pleasure, that resources are spent to feed myself, entertain myself, upgrade my life. So the more money I make, the more I spend, and my, my standard of living rises, and the more money I make, the standard of living rises, and no matter how much money I have, I find a way to spend that additional money on myself. And boy, I wish I could get a raise, because what I really want to buy for myself is X. And, and when our whole financial resources are oriented that way, that's a sign of the love of money, when they're all toward self and not toward anybody else. Uh, so, you know, what's in my heart? I mean, I think this is a challenge. Examine your hearts. I'll examine my heart. Do I spend a lot of time dreaming about things I want to get? Do I spend a lot of time going through magazines and catalogs and price comparing on the Internet and all that stuff to find out Where's the cheapest place to get this thing that I have to get? Does that consume a lot of my time and my mental horsepower? Um, you know, if, if you had to audit your books, and I don't mean an audit from the IRS or from a CPA. I mean, let, let's say a, a group of little old ladies from church came over to audit your re finances. You know, pick, pick some of the little old prayer ladies who have been saints for like 50 years praying, and they lived through the Depression. And now imagine laying... Imagine laying out your finances in front of these, this little group of church ladies and let them see how you, how you spend your money. Let them analyze it spiritually. What does it look like? Where are your priorities? What would their verdict be? Does our money say anything beyond that we love our own comfort and pleasure and indulging ourselves in the way we spend it? And so that's one evidence of the love of money. The other evidence of the love of money is in what we don't spend it on. And specifically, we don't spend it on the needs of others and reaching out to the poor and the broken if we love money. And that's the other part of the story. Look at verse 20. It says, At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so if the rich man was in the penthouse, so to speak, of his day, the poor man is in the sewer. These are as far apart as you could possibly get on the socioeconomic food chain, these two characters. And Jesus purposely describes someone at the top and someone at the bottom. Uh, the rich man is covered in purple. The poor man is covered in sores. In fact, he must be uh, handicapped in some way. He's laid. Notice that? He's laid at the gate. Someone had to carry him and drop him there. The rich man feasts luxuriously and sumptuously every day. But Lazarus just yearns just for a couple of the crumbs that are falling on the ground by the rich man's feet. Maybe he wanted that napkin bread. You know, back then they didn't have napkins. The way they cleaned their hands and face after they were eating is they had a piece of bread. Just dry bread that you, you know, just kind of you know, wiped on yourself. And that's how you cleaned up after a meal. You know, a little bread, a little water. And, and, and then you take that bread and you just throw it on the ground. You know, and, and you just imagine this, this poor beggar like, oh, that napkin bread. I know it was wiped on that guy's greasy face. I don't care. I'm so hungry and miserable that I'll take it. And so he's longing for this bread and it's not, even that's not given to him. And so that's what the love of money does. Not only does it cause us to 
pour out our life's resources and energies on selfish indulgement and entertainment and pleasure and all that. But it also, I think, closes our hearts toward those who are poor and needy. So that when the Lazarus is laid at the door of our life, when people come into our lives who have genuine needs, if we love money, we just don't see them. We don't go there. It's like, well, you know, this guy's at my door. What am I supposed to do? Feed him? I mean, if I feed him, then I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning there's going to be ten Lazaruses. What am I supposed to feed all of them? You know, who am I? Am I charity for this whole town? I can't support every beggar in this whole town. Everyone's going to come to me. And doesn't he have any relatives? And why doesn't the synagogue help this guy out? Or, you know, and so you can rationalize why I, I shouldn't help this one person who's laying right in front of me right now that God has brought to my attention. Why can't I help that person? Well, the person who loves money, his heart or her heart is so constricted that there's no compassion toward that person in need when they're right at your doorstep, right at the gate. Um, I really don't see much going for this poor guy, except one thing. He's got one thing going for him in the story. He has a name. Isn't that an interesting detail? Why is the rich man anonymous, but the poor man is called Lazarus? That's kind of weird, huh? And I don't know for sure. I don't have a 100% answer for you. I'll give you my best guess. I think two things. One is the meaning of his name. It's from Eleazar and Lazarus. It means God helps. So here's a man who is relying on God to help him. Only God will help him. It reminds us that the kingdom of God is oriented toward the poor and the broken and needy because it's a kingdom of grace. Uh, but the other thing I think is, is it, it kind of hints already that God's eyes are on Lazarus and not on the rich man. You see, the rich man in his day, humanly speaking, would be known by everybody. Someone that rich, someone that powerful, everybody would know the guy's name. And no one would know Lazarus. But God knows Lazarus. And the rich man, eh, don't even know who he is. And so I think it's a hint at where God's compassion lies in this story. It reminds me of a friend I have who, um, he said when he's in Boston and the, the panhandlers are out, you know, asking for money and they got their Dunkin' Donuts cups out and sometimes he feels compelled to give them something. He says one of the things he's been trying to discipline himself to do is whenever he gives a handout to some person asking for it, he disciplines himself to look at the person and say, by the way, what's your name? Instead of just kind of, there you go, have a nice day. But he, he says, what's your name? And the person says, oh, my name is whatever. You know, they have a name. And it's a reminder that there are people in need of the grace of God just like I have a name and I am a person in need of the grace of God. And so it helps us not to see it just as a charity gift, but as a human being. So Lazarus has a name. And that is what the love of money looks like. The pouring out of resources on personal indulgence and the withholding of resources from the Lazarus as the God lays right at the doorstep of our lives. And what are the consequences then of the love of money? What happens as a result in the long term? Well, that's what the rest of the story is about. Verse 22, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So in the afterlife, there's a great reversal. The rich man who was in comfort now goes to a place of torment. The poor man who was in torment now goes to a place of comfort. We're told that he goes to Abraham's bosom. Uh, Abraham's side. Some of you guys have the King James Version, maybe. It says Abraham's bosom in that version. It's, you know, he's right here. Abraham's got him right here. Abraham, the father of the Jews, the, the 
paragon of faith, uh, a guy who was renowned for his hospitality, he'll welcome Lazarus to his side. In fact, there might even be a suggestion of a feast here, because you remember how they ate back in those days at a feast? They didn't sit down at the table like this. They had a low table with like a couch by it, and what they would do is they would put their arm on the, by the table and then put their legs out. You know, I can't do this, but you get the idea. And then he'd stick his legs like this. And then with this hand, you would eat at the table with your arms up. And then the next guy would be right here. So you could lean against somebody's breast. Do you remember in the story of uh, the, the, the Last Supper, the Apostle John reclined against Jesus' chest? You know, what, he was just right next to him. He just kind of, you know hanging with Jesus and you know, he loves him and, as his brother and he just leans against him. So maybe that's it. Maybe the imagery here is that Lazarus has gone to the eternal feast. He's now feasting with Abraham in heaven. But there's also a reversal on the other side. The rich man goes from comfort to torment. The rich man becomes a beggar. See what he says? He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. You know, this rich guy still thinks he's in charge. He's still giving orders. Hey, send Lazarus down here to give me this, and doesn't get it. Abraham uh, said, verse 25, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Now, I think it's really important that we don't misunderstand verse 25. If you take verse 25 out of context and you don't read it in light of what came before and what came after, it could easy, be easy to say, just based on 20, verse 25, that what this parable is about is that if you're rich, you're going to hell, but if you're poor, you're good, and you're going to heaven. That's not the point of the parable. Okay? It's about the love of money. It's about the love of money. It's the man's unrepentant heart, the rich man's love of wealth instead of the love of God. And so I think what what Abraham is simply pointing out is the ironic reversal that's taking place. He's simply showing, hey, you notice you were there and now he's here and vice versa. And so, that's where we go if we love money. And what a terrible place it is. I think these verses are one of the most graphic, vivid, shocking, viscerally upsetting pictures of hell anywhere in the Bible. You want to know what hell's like? I think this is the closest we get to having a very disturbing description of what hell is like. So what is hell like? Well, there's two things that we see in this passage. The first is that hell is a place of torment and agony. That's the first thing. Look at verse 23. In hell where he was in torment. At the end of verse 24. I am in agony in this fire. At the end of verse 25, you are in agony. I love that, that whole thing about just... Send him down to dip his finger in a little water and then just, you know, ah, just a little on my tongue. Anything. Because, you know, when you're really in torment and pain, like you want, you'll take anything. You're crazy just to have any kind of relief whatsoever from the torment. I had uh, strep throat this week for about three days. And, you know, strep throat, ugh, so terrible. Your throat hurts. You can't swallow. You have a fever. Your whole body aches. My wife, this is something my wife puts it. She says, when I have strep throat, I just want to escape from my body. And like that's how you was oh it's such a terrible feeling and you take drugs and you still feel bad and all this and I, by the way I'm not contagious anymore I'm on antibiotics for those of you I shook hands with in the morning um, and you know and you, you do anything like, you can watch TV I'll do anything one time I actually caught myself doing this walking around, by myself in the bedroom and I, I caught myself I was walking around the bedroom going like this 
I'm like losing my mind. Like, but, it, but, but it felt good. It felt really good to do that. It was just kind of a comforting sort of rhythmic thing. I don't know why it felt good. But that's it. When you're really miserable, you'll do anything, anything to ease the pain. Anything to ease the pain. And so here's this guy. He's burning. I mean, uh, scientists and doctors and everyone tell us that perhaps being burned is the most painful thing the human body can experience. So here's a man being burned and he's just crazy. Anything. A, a drop of water on his finger. Ooh, that would feel good. Anything to ease my pain and suffering. So hell is a place, first of all, of torment. But the other thing about hell that we see in this text, and I think this is in some ways as or even more disturbing than the torment element, is that hell is permanent. Look at verse 26. Abraham says, Besides all this, between you, us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. It's fixed. It won't go away. You can't get there from here. You can't come here. We can't go there. There's going to be no rescue. There's no way to escape. This is a supermax penitentiary of punishment. You can't get out forever and ever. A great chasm has been fixed. And what a terrible thought to think that you know, the torment goes on and on. You, you know, when he's been there 10,000 years, right, to take the, the old hand but turn it around, if you've been there 10,000 years, to think that you've only begun, to be in that place of torment for a century after century rolls on and millennia and millennia and age upon age, and as the eons roll on, your puny mind begins to grasp what eternity means what infinity means. And so the soul sinks down into an infinite abyss of despair of which there is no bottom. Hopeless, hopeless forever. I mean, it's such a terrifying, chilling picture of hell. Which is why I think a lot of people don't want to think about hell or don't believe in hell. Because for a lot of us, this just doesn't fit. Like, how could there be such a place? If God is love... Why would he send anybody there? It doesn't seem just. It seems it's, it's just too much. I mean, forever and ever. Uh, you know, okay, so Lazarus, uh, or the rich man didn't care about Lazarus. Fine. Okay, fine. He didn't care about Lazarus. But does that mean he should go to hell forever? I mean, how about this? What if we just sent the rich man to hell for as long as Lazarus laid at his gate? Eh, that's fair. He laid at his gate 20 years? Okay, 20 years. But... You know, forever and ever? And so it seems that God is unjust. It seems to make God out to be a monster that the, the, the time does not fit the crime, is what it seems like. And so this is a very difficult doctrine. In fact, some people who believe that the Bible does teach hell, which it does, Jesus is often teaching hell. You know, if you don't like sermons where people talk about money and hell, then you really wouldn't have liked Jesus preaching because he talked about it a lot. It's the two almost most common themes in his uh, ethical teaching and his instructions. Um, and so, uh, what do we do with the seeming injustice of hell? It doesn't seem to make any sense. And as a result, there's people who have taken different positions. Some people take a position that's known as annihilationism. 
Annihilationism is the idea that, that if, maybe some people go to hell, but eventually they're annihilated. They just get burned up and poof, they cease to exist. Because it can't go on forever. And the other side, same idea but different direction, is the idea of, of hell as kind of a place of purging. It's purgatorial. Uh, people go there and their sins are burned up or whatever. They finally repent and eventually they make it out. But it can't go on forever. Because how could it go on forever? And, yeah, if the rich man had merely sinned against Lazarus, then yes, hell would be incredibly unjust. It would be overkill. If I had merely sinned against you, hell would be unjust to send me there. If you had simply sinned against everybody in this room, hell would be unjust. But sin is not just against others. It is ultimately against God who is of infinite worth and glory. In fact, look back at verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, yeah, the rich man was mean to Lazarus and uncaring, but that was a sin. But there's a sin behind the sin. There's a sin that's a source to the other sins. The sin behind the sin is the love of money and therefore the hatred and despising of the glory of God. God's glory... I mean, who's God? God is, to use philosophical terms, He is the ultimate good. He is of eternal, infinite value. God is, is good beyond all things. He... He, he is worthy of all worship and praise. We should value Him. We owe Him all love and honor. Because to be good, you have to love the greatest thing. If something is the greatest good and you don't love it, that makes you by definition not good. And so, to, to love God and to honor God is the essence of being good. What does it mean to be good? It's to love and glorify God. Because He is the greatest good. But when I treat the greatest good as if it's not the greatest good, I am committing an infinite crime. A crime of infinite malfeasance because I have an infinite obligation to God. And so because it's a sin against God, the crime is infinite in its ramifications. And therefore, the punishment must be infinite. And so it really is logical. It does make sense. In fact, if we were to say that hell had a time limit to it, then what we would in essence be saying is that God's worth had a limit to it. That God's glory was only worth so much but not more. And you've paid it back. But because God is an infinitely glorious God, then all sin is an infinitely heinous, nefarious crime against the glory of God and so deserves an eternal punishment. What a terrifying picture. If we love money, we will burn in hell. That's the message of this text. So, Abra uh, so this guy starts to bargain. He begs. Verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. It's like the Christmas carol, you know. Send him back to warn Ebenezer so he doesn't do, make this mistake. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What are Moses and the prophets? That's the Old Testament. In other words, they have the Bible. Hey, they got the Bible. Let them read the Bible. You want to know what God says? Read the Bible. You know, why do you have to go back to tell them? And of course, this rich man is not used to people telling him no, because he's the rich man. People don't say no to the rich man. 
So he's mad, verse 30. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If you don't believe the Word of God, if, you don't, if your heart is hard and you don't believe the Word of God, then even if I could do a miracle up here, you still wouldn't believe it. You'd be like, oh, that was a trick. Yeah, that was some kind of smoke and mirrors. I don't believe it. You know, you wouldn't believe it. Because the problem is our hearts. It's not a lack of evidence to believe the gospel. It's just that our hearts are hard. <clears throat> oh, but isn't it great that someone has come back from the dead? Someone has come back from the dead. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. His love for the glory of God was perfect where ours has been imperfect. And not only did He live the perfect life, He died the perfect death because on that cross, the wrath of God for my sin was being poured out on Jesus in my place. Jesus was the infinite man. He was the God-man. And so, His death was an infinite death that could assuage an infinite debt. And so Jesus was crucified in my place because He's the only one who could be crucified in my place and truly pay the penalty for my sins. And so the anger of God against my sin is poured out on Jesus so I could be forgiven and made new and made righteous. And so anybody here who will simply repent and believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. To become a Christian, it's not about getting my life together. It's not about making amends. Alright, I made these errors. Now I've got to fix them. And Now if I get my life in order, then I'll be on the right track. No, no, no. It's simply coming to Jesus and saying, I am a sinner and I need to be saved, and Christ will forgive you and take you in. And for those of us who are Christians, who do know Jesus, who have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you know, what's the message in this for us? And I think the message is, let us continue to wage war against the love of money in our souls. Let us keep loving Christ above all else, even above money. Because Jesus, He gave freely, He gave radically. Jesus gave the most precious commodity, which was His own blood, and He gave so radically. He was so liberal with His giving of His blood toward us. He gave His whole life. And so as Christians, we should just be bold and give, give it all. You know, I mean, What are we holding on to for? Why are we holding on to this life? Uh, some of you know it's my birthday tomorrow. I'm going to be 36. <laughs> so by my calculations, I'm half dead. Uh, you know. Right? I mean, no offense to anyone here who's like, you know, in their 70s. I'm not saying... You're almost dead, you know? We're all just dead people walking around. So, like, what are, we, what are we living for? Why are we holding back? Why don't we just live with reckless abandon for Jesus? What... What's so important about this life? We know what's going to happen when it's over. God's told us. He's told us that it's all about the kingdom of God. And so, why do I live, you know, halfway? Why don't I live all the way for Christ and just give Him my all? And use whatever I have to serve the kingdom of God, including my resources. And to love God so much that I'm willing to give up of, of my resources, too. Why do I hold on to wealth as if it can save me or do anything for me on the other side? Instead, let me love God and use my money to serve others. Uh, and it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Just use what you have to serve the Lord. Uh, if you are wealthy, if God's blessed you with wealth, let me just ask you this, brother and sister. Why has God given you that wealth? 
Why do you have a Midas touch? How come you're one of those people who, no matter what you do, you can see, you just know how to make money. You're good at making money. Well, I think God's given you that money for the same reason God's given me an ability to preach. It's so that we can bless other people. So that we can serve the kingdom of God. So that we can see God's kingdom advanced. And so if you do have wealth or prosperity to some degree, use it for the kingdom of God. Uh, minister to the, the Lazaruses that are laid at the gate of your life. You don't have to go out and save the world. That's God's job. Just the people who God brings before you. Start there. Um, if you're in this church and this is the church you call home, you need to give financially to help support this church. You know, because, Why? Because I get a commission if you give? No. Because, <laughs> because we're proclaiming the Word of God. And Christians are called to associate themselves with a local church and to help proclaim the Word of God and to give as they can to that local church. And so if you're not giving to the local church but you're enjoying the benefits of this church, you're a mooch. You need to give to the work of the local church. Sorry, that's how it is. Let's give to missions. Let's give to the proclamation of the gospel around the world so that that others can hear the gospel and others can come to know Christ. I heard this really cool story about this guy. Um, There's someone in our church who had a friend out in Pennsylvania. And this guy in Pennsylvania, a while back, he started a trucking company, just himself. And uh, just, you know, this guy's not a financial guy. He's not a Wall Street guy but he started his trucking company. And he had this really audacious goal, this trucker. He said, in my lifetime, I want to give a million dollars to the work of foreign missions. That's pretty bold. God blessed his trucking ministry, continued to pour out his blessing on the trucking ministry. And I guess this guy was telling me, today this guy gives a million dollars every year to the work of foreign missions. That's one thing I have heard from people who are big givers and I don't mean wealthy people, just people who know how to give financially, is, is they always tell me, the more I give, the more God blesses me. And I, I've heard that enough times to believe that it must be true, that God, you can't outgive God. And so give. Um, and so whatever your gift is, whether it's money, or whether it's teaching, or maybe God's given you a very keen intellect, use it for His glory, maybe that's your gift. Maybe your gift is music. Maybe your gift is organization and leadership. Um, you know, I don't know what your gift is. Maybe you're just one of those people who you, you don't have anything big you do. You just see needs and you help out. And when you see something needs to be done, you notice it and you do the small things. Uh, there's a lady in my church, I'm not going to say her name or embarrass her, but every Sunday she puts this drink here on the pulpit for me. And no committee hired her to do it. The church did not take a vote. She, just, she saw the need and she does it. This is really encouraging to me, this little cup. Because, you know, I have to get up here and preach sermons about, you know, like, if you love money, you're going to burn in hell. Like, you know, and I'm like, uh, 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 don't want to tell 600 people they're going to burn in hell. Don't want to do it. But I'm like, okay, it's the Word of God. And I see the cup. And it's like, ah, someone loves me. God's taking care of me. You know, that it's, it means a lot, this little cup. It means a lot. And so it's... You know, there's a little thing that's helping the Word of God go forward. And so we all just, whatever God's given you, it's the point isn't how much He's given you or what He's given you. The point is using it for Him. Because at the end of the day, it's, God's not impressed by riches or poverty. He's impressed by our hearts serving Him and being poured out to Him. And so people, the time is short. The Kingdom of God is upon us. Christ has given us everything. No matter what we give, it will never match what Christ has, is, and will give to us. 
And so just give. Give your lives away for the kingdom of God. There's no, nothing better to serve with your life. Let's pray.